It's my privilege uh, this morning to introduce our speaker. Uh, Morris and I were talking some months ago about this conference and uh, uh, Maurice said to me, you know, we really need somebody, as we're looking at the whole thing of the cost of church planting, the risks and the rewards, we need somebody that can really root stuff in the Word of God. So for those of you that don't know who, who David is, he has been around the New Frontiers world uh, virtually from the very beginning. He's based in Bedford, in Woodside Church, and, uh, and then recently retired. And uh, is modelling for us what retirement looks like. And it's not going very well for the rest of us. Uh, Scylla, please help us. It's not going well for the rest of us if this is a model of it, because this guy's as busy as ever. Big round of applause, please, for our speaker. Well, thanks for the welcome. Uh, I guess you had to get your own back from being called grandpa yourself. <laughs> to actually look to someone who's even older than David Holden. So, <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's a uh, real privilege to be able to do this. Um, Tiller and I, we've come here from uh, Krakow and then um, and Czech Republic, where and Andre and Natasha will be sharing about this later in the week. We were serving an, another church planting conference, but this was Ukrainian refugees all across Europe. But, uh, and inspiring them, hopefully, to plant churches. Well, they don't need much inspiring, we're giving them some training in it. Um, so that was good. And uh, in August, um, I was in Pakistan, and I'd just like to share a little bit about things that are happening in the wider family, don't we? And I hadn't been there for a number of years, obviously partly because of COVID, um, but I was so, so encouraged being with our churches in Pakistan, and they've got a new leader, age 34. We're serving all our churches there. And uh, we had a leaders and potential leaders retreat, part of what we did. And I just, at one point, said, How many of you are under 35? Over 50. No, no, I'm not asking you now. <laughs> I know, it'll be lovely, but it was just a tremendous encouragement. To see over 50% of the hands go up. Wow. Which in Western context, now in our style of churches, you don't often get that yeah. for people in leadership. And so it was just tremendous to be with them. One place we went to, sadly, um, four days later, was completely underwater. Um, people all gathered into the church building to have the John, including the pastor for two of the churches. Uh, so they're really going through it, but it's just tremendous to be there with them. Okay, yes, I'm doing, I've been asked to do Bible studies in Philippians, but to fit in with the risks and the rewards theme. Uh, so I've often preached from individual sections of Philippians, I've never studied the book as a whole. So now, in my own personal quiet times in the mornings, what I tend normally to do, and this is just my own way of doing things, uh, is to take a very meaty commentary or two and study one particular book. I was actually, when this came through, halfway through doing that in the book of Numbers, 
which is another book that I've not studied in detail before, but that's how I tend to do things. And uh, so this came through Philippians. And so I'm so grateful. Um, I'm not sure whether it was Morris, Dave, or Bill Whistle's idea in the first place. Did you me up? I thought I saw him earlier. Oh, yeah. Okay. But thank you, because it really got me into studying this uh, wonderful book. And to get the whole concept, it's really good to do that. And that's why it's important for conferences like this, actually, not just to take individual passages, but to really go through something. That's what I hope to do. Um, there's some great, this is just by way of introduction, there's great, um, the, the great commentaries on this book. I'll just mention some of them uh, that I studied. Uh, so, there's a great one by a guy called Mike Keogh from um, New Zealand um, on, on the book. He's, that's two volumes, each 500 pages. So if you really want to get into Philippians, <laughs> that's the one to go for. I found it so exciting, even on my trip to Pakistan, I was reading that rather than watching a film. So it must have been really good. Uh, and it really was. And then Gordon Fee's done one in the New International Com Commentary on the New Testament series. Walter Henson's done it in the Pillar series, and Frank Tillman on NIV application commentary. All of those I would heartily recommend if any of you, if you think, yeah, in the few minutes that I've got, I've got a taste for this book, take any of those. The first one, you'll need to have a bit of time, uh, but it's brilliant. Okay, and so I, I really felt that this theme was really important to the for the conference and because it so interestingly deals with themes that were that are affecting us in secular Europe today. Um, because on the whole, in secular Europe, the church is not strong. <laughs> let's be fair. Let's be fair. We we love what we're doing, but we have to say the church is not strong. It actually wasn't terribly strong in the Roman Empire either. Okay, they've been planted in a few places. We sometimes think Ephesus, it was tremendous. All of Asia heard the word of God. But actually, you read through, it wasn't all like that. And uh, certainly, the church in Philippi was really going through tremendous pressures. And although, uh, and so, just as secular Europe is against faith, the Roman Empire was also against most faiths. The Jewish one was tolerated, but most were not. We're not facing the physical persecution that they were in Europe yet, but nevertheless, we're facing huge dangers, one of which, um, and I think Vlad spoke about it last night, one is to cave into secular pressures particularly on issues of morality, which an emerging generation is, uh, younger people are facing much more than we, we did. The other thing is, and again, Vlad has touched on this, is retreating from it and just being judgmental about the world. Paul actually, his attitude to sin was to preach the gospel to it and set the church free from it as an example. And sometimes we... Forget, because we think we still have a Christendom mindset, 
where the church could influence things. Now we have to influence things much more like salt and light or yeast in the air, not by coming and some sort of being able to influence government too much. Let's face it. Okay, and that's what it was like for these people then. And in that context, Paul simply wrote to the church in Corinth, for example, they misunderstood it. He said, I'm not saying have nothing to do with people who sin in the world. If you had to do that, you have to be taken out of the world. Rather, I'm saying, you live godly lives in the church. That is what it will do. And Philippians is very much like that as well. Okay. So, let's read the scripture. And well, let, let me pray first. What I want to pray is that you get as excited about this book as I did when I spent three months studying it. Okay. Father, I pray for that. I pray that this book may begin to characterize, this letter may begin to characterize our leadership, our church planting, our willingness to suffer, our willingness to take risks, knowing that the rewards. Father, I pray, let that happen through this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Could I say the biggest risk that I found? You might think, well, it was prison, it was persecution. Actually, it wasn't that for me. It was, can our leadership in this, in this, all over the world actually be modeled on the leadership that is demonstrated in this epistle? Because our leadership tends to ape the culture. Okay? That's why, that's why I found the biggest challenge, to be honest. And the biggest risk that won't do it. Let's read it now. I'm reading for the New Living Translation. I tend to when I'm reading long sections of scripture because I find that uh, even new believers coming in can understand this. Okay, now I know that's not you. It's still what I tend to read. Okay, this letter is from Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. I'm writing to all of God's holy people in Philippi who belong to Christ Jesus, including the overseers and deacons. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Whenever I pray, I make my requests for all of you with joy, for you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. And I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. So it is right that I should feel as I do about all of you, for you have a special place in my heart. You share with me the special favour of God, both in my imprisonment and in defending and confirming the truth of the good news. God knows how much I love you and long for you, with the tender compassion of Christ Jesus. The relationship with the church. I pray that your love will overflow more and more and that you'll keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. For I want you to understand what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ. But this will bring much glory and praise to God. It's written very clearly, isn't it? And I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters, that everything that has happened to me here has helped to spread the good news. 
for everyone here, including the whole palace guard, knows that I am in chains because of Christ. And because of my imprisonment, most of the believers here have gained confidence and boldly speak God's message without fear. It's true that some are preaching out of jealousy and rivalry, but others preach about Christ with pure motive. They preach because they love me, for they know I've been appointed to defend the good news. Those others do not have pure motives as they preach about Christ. They preach with selfish ambition, not sincerely, intending to make my chains more painful to me. But that doesn't matter. Whether their motives are false or genuine, the message about Christ is being preached either way. So I rejoice, and I'll continue to rejoice. For I know that as you pray for me, and the Spirit of Jesus Christ helps me, this will lead to my deliverance. For I fully and expect and hope that I will never be ashamed, that I will continue to revolt for Christ as I have been in the past. And I trust that my life will bring honour to Christ whether I live or die. For to me, living means living for Christ, and dying is even better. But if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So I don't really know what's better. I'm torn between two desires. I long to go to be with Christ, which will be far better for me, but for your sake it's better that I continue to live. Knowing this, I am convinced that I will remain alive, so I can continue to help all of you grow and experience the joy of your faith. And when I come to you again, you will have even more reason to take pride in Christ Jesus because of what he's doing through me. I've not finished the chapter, as some of you who are really observant will have noticed. Uh, that's because, well, I'll explain tomorrow when I've got this. No, later this afternoon. I'm afraid you've got to be twice today. Okay, uh, so I'll be explaining that why. Let's, first of all, the background understanding of the situation here. Firstly, Philippi was known as a Roman colony. It was like doesn't mean colonialism in the modern sense. It meant it was little Rome in Macedonia because it had been given that special status as a city. It would be occupied by retired Roman soldiers, exempt as Roman citizens from taxes, and the imperial cult, that is the worship of the emperor, would have been the predominant faith in Philippi. Okay. And that lies behind many of the references in this letter. And Paul, Paul is contextualizer par excellence. Every book he writes is written in a way that contextual and, and his preaching contextualizes the gospel and deals with the issues in the place to which he's writing. It's amazing. Okay. We'll go on and argue for that, but I won't. Um, and Keown puts it this way um, The attitudes characterizing both those at Paul's point of writing, that's in prison, and the Philippians are typical of Roman attitudes, especially selfish ambition, rivalry, envy, and vain conceit. Okay? You might say, well, they're pretty characteristic anywhere. But actually, Romans prided themselves in this. What I find is whenever I'm preaching, whatever I preach in lots of different cultures, I try and often take scriptures that particularly 
come against the issues in that particular culture that other people can relate to. Paul does that in this letter. Because Roman culture prided itself in things like selfish ambition. That's how you got honour. Um, while the Christ hymn, that's in chapter 2, we'll be looking at this afternoon, have multiple points of reference, one of the obvious ones that would speak into citizens of highly Romanized Philippians is the contrast between Christ and the Emperor. The use of citizenship language also brings the clash between the Roman Empire and the Kingdom into stark contrast. Our churches need to live in stark contrast to the world around whilst being understanding enough of the world around to be able to relate to it. That's how Paul approached the Gospel everywhere. Now, when he's preaching to Jews, the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ. When he's preaching in Athens, Greek poets are fulfilled in Christ. Okay? It's always how he does it. Here, he is challenging the whole way of life of the Roman Empire. So, there's some doubt as to where the letter was written from. Of the commentators that I love on this, Henson thinks Ephesus, because uh, he does seem to have suffered a lot in Ephesus, even though it's, written, it's not written in Acts. Whereas Fee and Keown think Rome. So, amongst my favourite commentators, it's 2 1 to Rome. So, I'm going, to go for, I'm going to go for Rome, I think, because we know definitely there was a Praetorian guard there, but we don't know that about Ephesus. And he talks about how that his, his gospel had been known amongst all those people. Okay, it was a Gentile church. There was no synagogue in Philippi. Those who were God-fearers had to meet by the river, which is where Paul went first, instead of going to the synagogue first. Uh, most would have been from the lower echelons of society, but some, one or two of the Roman names that are mentioned in the letter, would have been, probably been wealthy. And there were certainly larger homes, like that of Lydia, where they used to meet when Paul was there. It was a relatively poor but generous church, and is the church that most supported Paul in his ministry. Where even when he went to the next town, it says they supported him. They supported him in Corinth, so he could give up tent making for a while. And we'll deal with that in the final chapter when he writes Thanks for the Gift. So don't miss Saturday morning, because that's when all it all comes into uh, uh, into play. It was also a church, and I haven't read Steph's book. Oh, given the privilege of proofreading it. Uh, and, but the characteristic of this church was, and all the Macedonian churches, was that women were very prominent in the leadership. Okay, you read that in Acts, things we often skip over. There were a lot of prominent women there, and the next place, and the next place. And certainly that is true. Uh, some of the co-workers that I identified in this book were women. So it's a very women-honouring book. Uh, it was a church generally commendable, but now in danger of disunity. And Paul thinks a disunited church hinders the gospel, because they're not focusing on their mission, they're focusing on their problems. 
It was a missional church, strong emphasis all the way through on partnership in the gospel. And it was a church facing opposition and persecution from the authorities. Um, and also two tendencies which we'll read about in chapter 3 had come through in terms of legalism on the one hand and uh, uh, Ro Roman uh, secular, secular sec sexualized behaviour from the, on the other. We'll read about that in chapter 3. So that's the sort of church. It teaches them how to face persecution and opposition. It talks about what will advance and what will hinder gospel mission. Very important for Europe today. And dealing with disunity. Very interesting. Um, I'm so impressed by this. I've never seen it before. The two things that Paul was really writing this letter for, namely to deal with the disunity within the leadership, particularly two women who had fallen out with each other, who were co-workers with him, and thanking them for all their generous support. He doesn't actually get round to chapter till chapter four. But what he does, although he deals with them both directly in chapter four, all through the book he's dealing with them indirectly by teaching some of the principles which will help them get united. Could I just say, for church leadership, that's very, very important. We so often love to go directly to give the answer. Paul doesn't do that in this book. What he does is seemingly go all the way around the houses, but actually he is teaching into the issues that are causing the problems. And I know when I'm visiting some places who, who like a direct answer, uh, people will say to me when I'm travelling, okay, what do you think we should do about this? And I will never answer that question. <laughs> I will frustrate them. Because I want them to understand why they're doing it. Therefore, I teach what the scriptures say and then let them apply it and help them perhaps apply it on the way. And actually, a lot of the correction in the New Testament is done by indirectly rather than directly. The only time it's done directly, really, is particularly Galatians, where Paul hardly starts his letter without coming at them. Who you foolish Galatians? Who's bewitched you? You know, because there the gospel was so at stake that he has to. Whereas here the gospel wasn't at stake. Problems in the church were at stake. And he therefore takes the whole book, teaching them so that it is easy to work out what they should do. Particularly those who serve other churches remember that. You know, I know we're pretty good, we can give answers to all sorts of issues, but it's not the best way of doing it. Might solve the problem, doesn't help the people grow. Right, so let's get into it. So, first of all is the greetings. The greetings, thanksgiving and prayer, are typical of the style of letters of that time. What Paul does, he takes the way everybody wrote letters, to read other Roman letters, and it was written, or Greek letters, it would be written the same way, but he infuses them with Christian truth. Okay. 
And so Paul does that here. He adopts a cultural style, but infused with Christian truth. Again, another contextualization principle. He starts off Paul and Timothy. Even though Paul, the rest of the letter writes in the first person singular, I, including I am sending Timothy, actually he starts with, we're partners in the gospel. Because he wants to de demonstrate that, because one of his themes is partners in the gospel. He says, we are slaves of Jesus Christ. When Paul writes to Roman context, that's the letter to the Romans and the letter to the Philippians, he starts off with, we are slaves of Jesus Christ. Interesting, isn't it? Because it's sort of undermining the whole Roman approach to life to start with. Here we are, we're the people with authority here, we're slaves of Jesus Christ. And this is such strong words. Undermining the Roman value of ambition from the start and very meaningful in a Roman context. It denoted a biblical context of both attitude, serving others, taking the lowly position, but also privilege, as in the Old Testament, it is used to describe the key relationship of key leaders, Moses, Joshua, David, to the Lord. So in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you wouldn't get it through in the Hebrew, it's again slave that's used in the Greek translation, which is what the early church used. And so uh, it speaks both of humility and privilege. So uh, in, the, in his brilliant book, Slaves of Christ, this is written. <coughs> the term doulos, a slave, expresses both a vertical and a horizontal relationship of the Christian who both the willing vassal of the heavenly master and the submissive servant of fellow believers. You're a leader, that's what you have to be. A willing vassal of the great master and a submissive servant of fellow believers. The term epitomizes the Christian's dual obligation, unquestioning devotion to Christ and to his people. Yeah, people aren't there to serve your vision. Do you understand? You're there to equip them to fulfill God's call upon you corporately and there and then individually as God would lead them. You know, we often say, okay, my vision is I, I, this, this letter, I'll come back to it chapter four, but I can't help getting there. Uh, <laughs> this letter so undermines a lot of manuals on leadership. That have, that have infiltrated the Christian church of recent times. Okay. The vertical relationship is prior and the horizontal secondary. Christians are devoted to one another as a direct result of being devoted to Christ. When they serve each other, they are demonstrating and expressing their slavery to the Lord. Okay. Come on. You're planting a church not there to get people around your vision, it's there for you to serve the people who you're reaching. As I say, it's a theme largely neglected on manuals and leadership proceedings in Western teaching. Even the right restoration of spiritual authority, Paul doesn't minimise that at all. He's got spiritual authority, 
in the early days of Elizabeth's life ours could and did become grotesque without an equivalent emphasis on this truth. Spiritual authority, which I believe in, is grotesque without genuine servant leadership. And Paul then, unlike in Rome, he then goes on to say, and I'm an apostle. He doesn't do that here. You know, there's times for using the apostolic calling that God's given people, there's times for not using it. Because he's writing, this letter is a friendship letter. Contextually, that's what it is. It's a letter between friends. So Paul doesn't say, as an apostle. Okay. Other times he does, which is right. And and so if that's true though, why is it the only letter that's addressed to elders and deacons? Because Paul's generally not usually positioning this book. Well, firstly, because the way he expresses it shows they're part of the church rather than over it. Even apostolic ministry, I love that scripture where it says God has placed in the church first apostles, not over it. Okay? So they're seen part of the church rather than separate or over it. And elders and deacons together are important in leadership. Again, if I may reflect back a little bit. I think we emphasize eldership to the exclusion of deacons, whereas actually, and I think I take the same position as I think Steph was getting around the sort of saying that he believes in uh, in that interview, but we need to wait for the book. <laughs> okay. Uh, whilst I believe in the role of male elders as spiritual fathers within the church, leadership in this book was elders and deacons, which is very clearly includes women. Mm-hmm. You know, Romans 16, I commend to you Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Kentria. <coughs> and so, this wasn't just, what was for the whole church, as all the letters, but it wasn't just for the elders. Because we tend to do things. The elders and deacons, so that jointly men and women with particular responsibilities in leadership can lead the church into something. And I think that was important in Philippi. And it's probable that the problem, it would almost be certain, the problem of disunity in Philippi was amongst this leadership group. Okay, you owe the Ocean Certainly, were part of the team alongside Paul. And it will be part of this group's responsibility to follow Paul's instructions to sort out the problem, and specific instructions are given to one amongst them. Paul is addressing, quote here, the whole church, and the leaders especially, to act in response to his appeal and duty within their ranks, and with the whole church. The leaders above all others need to take on the Christ pattern and lead out of partnership, unity, humility selflessness, service, and sacrifice. Okay? You want to lead? There you are. Okay. 
So, then you get the thanksgiving and prayer. There's thanksgiving with joy for the Philippian church. It's called attitude with converts and those saved since he was there. 30% of all Paul's references to joy are in this letter. A suffering letter. Paul demonstrates gladness in suffering and wants the Philippians who are similarly suffering to also experience joy in it. Could I say, my experience of visiting churches going through hard times outside of the West is that joy is massive. You understand? Paul is the apostle of suffering but also the apostle of joy. The combination of Paul's situation Epaphroditus, Epaphroditus is near death, come on to, the threat of Judaizers, their suffering in the hands of pagan prosecutors, and the divisions in the church between rival factions has combined to bring a deep sense of loss and grief to the church. Paul's injunctions urge them to rediscover their joy in the Lord. For Paul, joy is not a feeling derived <coughs> from prosperity, success, or good circumstances, but a deep, deep enough positivity despite externals. Yeah, and it's a better challenge for me. Still up here, I have to say, it's a big challenge for me to find joy in difficult circumstances. And fellowship and partnership in the gospel. Partnership is a theme of this letter. Koinonia, that close bond in, within a two-sided relationship. In this letter, partnership in unity, in generosity for the poor, in gospel proclamation, in living out the gospel practically, and in suffering. That's all the time that word koinonia is used. Even the word, Greek word evangelion has a background in the imperial cult because it was the good news was the emperor, emperor's birthday in, the, in that cult. The good news was the emperor's birthday when they celebrated the good news. <coughs> Writing directly challenging that. And it's a major theme. He challenges that cult in his opening words. For Paul, it's the good news of the victory of God and the power that brings salvation. And it refers to their initial conversion from the first day and until now, you have an ongoing involvement in mission and generosity. And then he says, the one who began a good work in you, gosh, time's going, began a good work in you, God by the Holy Spirit, is, um, God will complete his purpose. Now usually, that talks in terms of security and salvation. If God's begun a work in me, he'll complete it. That is not the context of this verse. The context of this verse is sharing the gospel. What I believe he's saying is that this wonderful mission that you're involved with, God will ensure will be brought to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. That the gospel will spread all around the world until Jesus returns. It's confidence in the gospel. I, I believe in eternal I believe in our security of salvation. I don't think that verse is what's teaching it. It's teaching the results of the gospel. Because, as Keon puts it, the notion of good works in Paul, without exception, is applied to the work of people, and especially Christians. While initiated and energized by God, it is not directly God's work, but his work through his people. 
Paul assures the Philippians that he believed that God would bring this mission to completion right up until the day of Christ, the completion of the new creation. This makes sense in the light of the challenges the Philippians are facing. Paul is expressing his profound confidence that they will be okay and that the mission will be completed. I want to say that to you who are church planting in Europe. God who's beginning in you a good work will bring it to completion and the gospel will spread and you may not see it. It may not be in your lifetime, but what you've brought will contribute to what God does. He is confident in the long-term spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you're just part of that. Note the affection in which Paul writes. He was in prison in Philippi and uh, and he's writing to one of his main supporters in his mission, both the flat churches and in his offering for the poor in Jerusalem and in giving him money to spend in prison because he didn't get any food unless people bought gifts and paid for it. See? This church is the one that supported him. And his prayer is that their love will continue to overflow. That's a characteristic word. Overflowing is a famous word of Paul. Apparently he uses it 26 times. I haven't counted, but that's what they tell me. And it's characteristic for Paul of the new age. We're living in the overflowing age. And here he's saying, let your love overflow. Come on, not just... <laughs> You're a good guy. Okay. No, let your love overflow. Okay? Leaders in the churches, let your love overflow to them. Theologically, love, and he said, with all knowledge, love overflow with all knowledge and understanding. Theologically, knowledge flows out of love, not the other way around. Some of our reformed theologians need to remember that when they're arguing with each other. Okay. <laughs> Thoughtful love towards God, one another, and the world. And looking forward to the day of Jesus Christ. He then talks about the unstoppable gospel advance. It's both a report to his supporters of what's happening in Rome, also served rhetorically so that even in sharing his story, he's bringing example to the Philippians in the priority of gospel mission. And the believers in Rome serve as a positive and a negative example to the Philippians. Paul starts with gospel advance before his own suffering. That's what he talked about first. He addresses them again now, brothers and sisters. By the way, brothers in the Greek rule, unless it's obviously in a male context, talks about refers to brothers and sisters. English, unlike German, doesn't have a word to express that. So we just you know we just have to muddle along and misunderstand scripture often as a result. Uh, because it is in brothers and sisters, unless it's in an obviously male context. Uh, and Paul is a pers- almost personifies, he says, the gospel is spread amongst Caesar's elite forces. He personifies the gospel as an unstoppable force 
sweeping the world. Okay? Can, can you just want to turn this off? I will. How about the other one? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Please, none of that goes on social media, can it? Yeah. Or quoted in your churches when it's being recorded. Okay. And so, then he spread through the whole imperial guard. Imprison the gospel is further advancing. Like a Trojan, him imprisoned is like a Trojan horse for the gospel. And incentivized his other believers in Rome. <coughs> Even those with wrong motivation and selfish ambition are brothers and sisters for their different believers. Then he preaches the gospel, but also motivates to harm Paul. These are examples to devote to the Philippian church. He's actually using them to teach the Philippians that your disunity is coming from selfish ambition. So this is what happens when selfish ambition gets into the church, a few churches. The challenge for preachers, I'm not challenged by this. How much is my motivation, love for the world and the people of God, how much I hope you do, hope you do well so that uh, we advance our position. Come on. No one else gets tempted that way. Oh well, I repent before you. <laughs> you lot must be absolutely perfect. Okay. <laughs> how much? And how much? Or simply do well. No. We don't want to do a bad job, obviously. But even our motivation love and serving people. But Christ is preached and Paul is an example to us all. Then there's the personal dilemma. To be with Christ or remain for the sake of the church and gospel mission. Paul is hard pressed to decide which. Actually, he does have confidence. Even though he puts his dilemma, it's much better for me to be with Christ personally, but it's much better for you, I say. He then uses very strong language, actually, and says, I am convinced I will remain. So he, a lot of debate. How was he convinced? Was it a word from the Lord? The word from the Lord that took him to Macedonia in the first place? The vision of a man from Macedonia calling? Was it a word from the Lord? Could well have been the case. Paul, although at other times he recognises he's hindered by Satan, he's a difference somehow. Also, he's founding his certainty in Scripture, although it's not obvious to us. He actually quotes from the book of Job at this point um, in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, he's quoting from Job, and quite common through in our translation. But that's what he's doing. So he's adding scripture to the word of the Lord. Um, is he confident that he has, because he's got Caesar's household? That he's got friends in high places who have assured him will be released through his trial, maybe. There's nothing wrong in having friends in high places. You know, you get nothing wrong in using those things. And we Westerners just don't, don't like that sort of thing. Who you know. Most of the world functions on who you know. Okay? And Paul often did that. It's okay. <laughs> Uh, 
going to escape, because again, there will be those who would help him. And then later returned to his appeal to, his appeal to Caesar. We know he went back there later. But this is written earlier than the full hero persecution and several years before his martyrdom. And he, but he's torn between his desire to be with Christ and the need to continue his missionary work. But that doesn't undermine his certainty of release and going to the Philippians or going on to Spain, possibly. Uh, and then just a few points to ponder on our confident theme, the risk of reward. Firstly, Paul is facing intense challenges, imprisonment, distance from the church he loved, rivalry, rivalry between believers in Rome and Philippi, yet he both rejoices and gives priority to gospel advance. Do we get occupied with the problem or gospel advance? Hmm? Secondly, I've touched on this, so I won't go into the detail. Paul is a wise pastor who doesn't address the issue of Philippi directly, but teaches by truth and example. Let's do that first. The risk, we might not deal with the issue, but the reward is that people actually get conviction from the for themselves rather than doing what you tell them. Thirdly, there's confidence in the opportunities of the gospel in difficult circumstances, which we must apply to the church in the Western world, weakened through absorbing secular culture, and particularly the man-centered individualism and lack of experience in suffering for the gospel. Okay, we're finding some younger people in some of our churches, certainly in the UK, who just can't cope with standing against modern cultural things. Whereas their equivalents in Iran might lose their life. You've got to build things up here. Rewards. We need to believe in the unstoppable advance of the gospel without being triumphalistic, but in reality about the circumstances, but convinced that the gospel will spread. Joy permeates this chapter in this letter. The unity of the Philippian church is a major gospel preoccupation. And then there's a challenge to leadership regarding motivation. Is it genuine love rather than personal advance? And as I say, we need to shout question many Western Christian approaches to teaching on leadership. Because rather we call it emotion. I love love it. I love you. You know, it's not language we're familiar with. Very much there. I hope that's helpful. Sorry, I've gone on a bit long, but I hope this underlines why we're studying this book as a motivation for church planting in Europe.